thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. This week, life here on Earth uses DNA. But why does it do that? And would aliens be made of the same stuff? Plus, in the news, how your gut microbes are controlling your genes, a new way to fight phobias, and life on Mars. We get a sneak peek at where the first human colonists will live on the Red Planet. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We don't usually start the show like this, but we're breaking with tradition to ask if you can help us. The Naked Scientist has been going for over 15 years now, and during that time we've created more than 1,000 programmes which have been downloaded tens of millions of times by listeners just like you all over the world. We want to make sure that the Naked Scientist programmes can remain available for free for everyone forever. To do that, we need to meet our running costs, rebuild a website that's groaning under the strain of 80,000 pages of content and bring you a brand new suite of programmes for 2017. Now, our target is to raise £50,000 or more in the run-up to Christmas and we're hoping that you can help us out. This week, appropriately enough, it's Giving Tuesday, so we'd like to appeal to you, if you enjoy the programme and you'd like to help us to continue to flourish, to make a donation. The top 10 contributors each week in December will be publicly thanked on the programme and listed in a Hall of Fame on the new website, unless you tell us otherwise, of course. If you think you might be able to help us, please head to nakedscientist.com slash support. Thank you. Do you have a phobia? Well, if so, you're in very good company because about one in 20 of us are affected by an irrational fear of something. Normally, to combat phobias, you have to repeatedly expose yourself in a safe environment to the very thing that scares you, so you unlearn your fear response. But many people find this so distressing that they give up or they're too frightened to turn up for the treatment in the first place. But now scientists from the University of Cambridge have found a way to retrain your brain to overcome a phobia unconsciously. Ben Seymour told Naked Scientist Greg Jackson about his new technique. Anxiety disorders, phobias, post-traumatic stress disorder are much commoner than maybe we realise. They affect a large number of people. How many people do suffer with this sort of condition? So I think one in 14 represents kind of the whole scope of anxiety disorders. Do you know why we have these fears in the first place? I have an irrational fear of velvet, and I know it's irrational because velvet I know is never going to hurt me, but it doesn't stop me feeling having huge heebie-jeebies and the shivers every time I see it anywhere near me. Yes, I mean, the list of phobias is long and, and diverse and there are some remarkable things people are afraid of. More common things are things like spiders and snakes. Velvet, I have no idea where that actually comes from, but maybe there's something in your past <laughs> which relates to that that I don't know about. 
So how would you normally treat a fear? Usually therapies are orientated around confronting the fear in some respect. In my case, that would mean stroking velvet repeatedly, which is hugely distressing. Thankfully, though, Ben has found another way to treat phobias, and it doesn't involve facing my fears. Imagine you're actually a subject in our experiment. On the first day, we would show you a bunch of pictures, like colourful circles, and we'd get you to line the brain scanner and look at these different images. So over the last few years, we and others have developed ways of kind of reading the content in complex patterns of brain activity. So, for instance, for visual images, it's now possible to decode with quite considerable specificity the content of what someone is looking at at any particular time. And this real-time neuroimaging has been made possible by an artificially intelligent algorithm, which can quickly tease apart which pattern in the brain corresponds to seeing a coloured dot. So if Ben shows you a red dot, your brain might be like this. A blue dot, like this. And a yellow dot, like this. You get the picture. Next, every time you see that yellow dot, he gives you a small electric shock. Ben is conditioning you to fear that yellow dot. And if we look in your brain, we'd see a a response in the fear um, nucleus of the brain, the amygdala. Amazingly, even if there is no yellow dot to be seen, every now and then that I'm scared of yellow dots pattern resurfaces in your brain, except you're totally unaware of thinking about it. This effectively happens uh, subconsciously or unconsciously. And every time we see the brain enter into a state of similarity with the fear cue, we give the subject a reward, a little bit of money. And what that does is attach a bit of positive value to some information in the, in the, in the brain which was previously associated with something aversive. So in effect, it chips away at the aversiveness of that fear memory. Do this enough, and in theory, it means no touching velvet to overcome my fear. You're ridding someone of a phobia unconsciously, and therefore it's stress-free, unlike traditional therapies of today. We've reduced the fear memory without the person experiencing any fear at all. That is something which is not a feature of any other, any other procedure that we know of. And if we can find out what the brain patterns are that signal a person's real phobia, then the same technique can be used to treat them. That was Ben Seymour, and his work was published in Nature Human Behaviour. Let's hope it works. Now, trillions of microbes, those are bacteria, fungi and viruses, live in the human gut. They're known as your microbiome, and they play a crucial role in keeping you healthy by helping the immune system, keeping bad bugs at bay, and in aiding digestion. Now, scientists have discovered that they also influence the activity of some of our genes elsewhere in the body through what are called epigenetic effects. In essence, chemicals made by the microbes travel to many tissues, and they turn genes on and off. A diet rich in fruit and vegetables seems to encourage this to happen very strongly, while a Western diet that's also associated with poorer health and diabetes blunts the effect. Kirsten Gubfrick heard how from John Deneau. When we consume food in our diet, if there's a fair amount of complex carbohydrates, which these bugs really like, and they take this fuel and they convert it, to small molecules that include things such as acetate, butyrate, and propionate. These are small, short-chain fatty acids. So for instance, acetate is essentially vinegar. And so that gets absorbed by the host and is converted to information at the level of the epigenome. 
That sounds very exciting. How did you find all this out? We looked at and compared mice that were in a germ-free environment, so basically mice in a bubble versus those that are colonized, and we compared the effect on the epigenome. One of the diets that we looked at is a sort of a Western-type diet that has a much higher percentage of fat and simple sugars. And we saw a, a real suppression of the effects on the host under a, uh, a poor diet, so to speak. So the poor diet was suppressing this communication between our gut microbiome and the host epigenome. So I think that's really an important finding. How do your findings translate to humans? How would you test for that in a human being? It's always tough to do such experiments in humans because it's, it's hard to get people to eat what you want them to eat, right? There is evidence in humans that those molecules sort of individually, like acetate, for instance, can have effects on humans. The question is, are those effects going through the same mechanism that we've identified in the mouse? I suspect they are, but that's for the future. But I think it's quite interesting that in our, our human history, we've, we use a lot of acetate. We use a lot of vinegar under conditions where we can't, for instance, grow fresh vegetables. For about 5,000 years, we've been pickling things. One could imagine that many of the ways in which vinegar perhaps mediates some of its health benefits that have been described, maybe it's through a similar mechanism as we've discovered in the mouse experiments. So maybe there is a good reason why we put a pickled cucumber on our burger. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Indeed, John and his team saw similar epigenetic changes when they gave germ-free mice some vinegar and the other fatty acids in their drinking water. And yet John isn't advocating food supplements in order to reverse the effects of a crappy diet. There are lots of other health benefits to good food. Maybe one way to, to summarize is, is listen to your gut. Some food for thought. That was John Denu from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he published those findings in Molecular Cell this week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Georgia Mills. And if you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist. Still to come on the programme, when will the first people be moving to Mars? And we DNA sequence a smoothie to find out what's in there. Intrigued? Well, stay tuned to find out. But first, it's the time where we take dogma to task and we debunk a myth conception. Tim Revel is going for gold. Grab a ruler and measure the distance from your elbow to your wrist and then from your elbow to your fingertips. Divide the two measurements and what do you get? Maths's most divine number, the golden ratio. Or something close to it. Or not so close to it. The myth isn't that precise. The golden ratio is the solution to the equation x squared minus x minus 1 equals 0, which turns out to be about 1.618. That could be the end of the story, but there are many golden ratio math conceptions, with most of them imparting an almost religious-like level of infatuation with the number. It's known as the divine ratio for its sheer beauty. Seriously. They say architecture, paintings, music and even human faces with golden ratio proportions are universally preferred. But that's just bunk. When you actually test the proportions that people like most, there's never any preference for the golden ratio. 
The myth pushers also love to say that the ancient Greeks built the Parthenon in Athens using the golden ratio, and that's why it's so beautiful. But it's simply not true. All you need to do is measure it to find out. The golden ratio is actually a really cool number, with plenty of proper mathematical reasons to be interested in it. The myths just detract from it. My favourite example links the Fibonacci sequence, the golden ratio, and, um, uh, plants. The Fibonacci sequence is the one where the next number in the sequence is found by adding together the previous two. So starting with the sequence 1, 1, the next number in the sequence is 2, found by adding together 1 and 1. Then the next in the sequence is 3, found by adding together 1 and 2. And then the next is 5, found by adding together 2 and 3, and so on. Meaning that the first few Fibonacci's are 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8. Almost magically, if you work out the ratio between each consecutive number in the Fibonacci sequence, you end up dancing around the golden ratio, getting closer and closer as the numbers get higher. The ratio 3 to 2 is 1.5, just below the golden ratio. The ratio 5 to 3 is 1.67, just above the golden ratio. And the ratio 8 to 5 is 1.6, just below the golden ratio. As you get closer to infinity, the relationship between Fibonacci numbers gets closer to the golden ratio. And plants love this too. Imagine trying to build the most efficient plant ever. You want to place your leaves in such a way that they overlap as little as possible to catch the most sunlight. Plants grow leaves in simple ways, with the angle between successive leaves always the same. So to design the best plant ever, all you need is to choose the optimum angle. The answer? Divide the circle by the golden ratio. Then the resulting angle ensures your leaves never directly overlap. Incredibly, real-life plants actually seem to use this. This means that when you look at the leaf patterns created, you often end up with Fibonacci numbers, e.g. in the number of petals on a daisy or the number of spirals on a pine cone. The golden ratio is actually pretty special, just not in the way a lot of people think. Tim Revel there. And meanwhile, if you've come across anything that warrants a reality check, then send it to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can get in touch on Facebook and we'll take a look. Now, in the world of zoology, some things are trickier than others to study, such as the energy consumption of an orangutan swinging through the trees, for example. But Roehampton University's Lewis Halsey has solved the problem in an ingenious way by engaging some human orangs to help him, as he explains to Connie Orbach. I had a sort of an epiphany. I think it was about 2009 I was at the Society for Experimental Biology annual conference Dr. Susanna Thorpe at the University of Birmingham was talking about locomotion in arboreal primates. She mentioned that there was very limited information on the energy costs for arboreal primates to move around in an energetically challenging environment. I thought, well, hmm, why don't we measure energy expenditure in, in human beings moving around and kind of get them to do things that are ape-like? And that could be a first insightful step into this murky world of the energetics of uh, arboreal primates. Arboreal primates. Those are the types that spend some or most of their time in the trees, swinging from the branches. And Lewis had some new exciting kit that could measure oxygen consumption for a mask whilst not impeding movement. But humans and apes, they seem quite different to me. 
there's always going to be uh, a limit to how much you can infer about a specific species from a referential model. The trade-off is this. To try and gain an understanding of the energetic costs experienced by these animals in the wild directly is almost impossible. It's very, very hard to even see an orangutan in the wild, let alone capture or restrain or whatever an orangutan and then put equipment on it. That's never going to happen. The natural first step towards gaining some sort of insight into the energetics of their movements up in the trees is to work with a tractable model. Very obviously the most tractable model for this situation is a human being and that's why I turn to our own species, if you like, to try and get some insight into these wonderful arboreal animals. So what sort of people would you use to simulate them? Well, parkour athletes, of course. They're basically street gymnasts who like to use typically the urban environment to move around with, and they'll practice and practice and practice moving around certain routes within their environment, within their urban habitat. It's, it's acrobatic and very impressive to watch. It's, it's quite a new sport, right? But it's, yeah, it's fairly hip and happening, as it were. And so we thought, well, these would be the people that could best emulate a tree-dwelling primate. <laughs> I like the idea of um, anyone that actually practices parkour listening to us trying to talk about it in a hip and happening way. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Potentially cringing. Yes. <laughs> My apologies to all those parkour athletes out there. <laughs> so what were you getting these guys to do? What were they doing to mimic apes? We created a, several scenarios that were sort of simulating a forest environment. It didn't look like a forest but it created situations somewhat akin to what our boiled primates will face, and then we were able to, to measure the energy expenditure of these parkour athletes. Pole swinging, rope climbing, high-level jumps. Lewis and his team created a veritable assault course for the athletes with the idea that these are big apes on sparse diets, and they are probably looking to use as little energy as possible. They're moving through the trees, and they come to a gap in the canopy, and basically they've got three options. One is to jump the gap, another one is to sway the tree they're on and bend it across the gap, and the third one, which is the most simplest in a sense, is to climb down the tree they're on, walk across the canopy floor and climb up the next tree. What we found was that something like an order of magnitude more energy for them to climb down a tree, walk across the forest floor and climb up the next tree than if they find some way to bridge that gap staying up in the trees. We can infer from that that they're not going to want to lose height unless they've got to. Well, sure. I'd rather take the path of least resistance too. But where does this sort of information fit into the bigger picture? We need to go further now in, in looking at how an arboreal ape's total daily energy budget is split between its background costs, you know, just, just to exist, and its costs to move the costs to um, digest its food. And then we can have a better idea about how their environments affect their energy expenditure, which, of course, drives how much food they need to eat. And then in turn, we can have an idea about how they're changing environments, so either indirectly due to climate change or more directly due to tree felling, how environmental change will affect their energy costs. And so it's likely there is a break point in terms of 
how much more energy they can be expending, for example, going up and down trees because the gaps in the tree canopy have become bigger or the, the, the only trees around are too small to climb across easily, that there's not going to be enough fruits available to service that energy cost. Where that point is, I certainly couldn't say, but I think it's reasonable to suggest that it may not be too far off. Well, let's hope there is still time for the animals. That was Lewis Halsey, and his paper was published in the Royal Society Journal, Biology Letters. A couple of you are getting in touch uh, on Twitter, at Naked Scientist, to talk about your phobias and your experiences of them. Ed Wilson has said when he was young he had an aversion, but it wasn't quite a phobia to the feel of certain fabrics and had a horror of feeling them on his teeth. But why were you eating fabric, Ed? Not sure about that. Susan Gray said she saw a client once who had a similar aversion to the yellow material that dusters are made from. Strange, isn't it? And if you're not terrified of going to space, would you consider living on Mars? And if you did, what would it be like there? Greer Jackson donned her space suit to see the first ever Mars show home. And when she was there, she asked Stephen Petranik, author of How We'll Live on Mars, whether anyone will be taking the trip anytime soon. I honestly think that there's a better than 90% chance that there'll be people on Mars by 2030. But the real kicker is how many people will be on Mars by 2050. Because by 2050, if Elon Musk is correct, he'll have a 1,000 rockets leaving at one time, each with 80 people in them. That's 80,000 people going to Mars in one trip. So it's highly conceivable that by 2050 there's 100,000 people on Mars. I mean, we've had problem after problem. I'm thinking with the Falcon rockets. that are, The last one exploded back in September, right? And then we've just had the ESA Mars rover crash land onto Mars, not to mention don't Beagle. Get me, don't I get mean, me started on ESA and Beagle. <laughs> if we can't get <laughs> rovers to Mars, this, how are we going to get people? This is a matter of money, and it's a matter of playing the odds in the space game. Rockets are binary. They work or they don't work. About 20% of the time, they don't work. We had two shuttles that went down with eight people in each one of them. This is a dangerous business. It's not like getting in an airplane, but that is not going to stop anyone from going. Well, why wouldn't it, though? Why do we even want to go? Well, we really need a backup for civilization on Earth. I mean, we are long overdue for being hit by a major asteroid, and that's just one of many, many, many extinction events for humans on Earth. We've spent 95% of our existence as humans moving beyond the horizon into the next wilderness because it's a matter of survival. But Mars is not somewhere particularly good for survival, as Dr Marek Kula from the Royal Observatory Greenwich explains. Well, you wouldn't want to go there in your swimsuit. The temperatures can go as low as minus 70 degrees centigrade. Perhaps on a warm summer's day at the equator, they might just nudge zero, maybe a little bit higher than that. The air pressure is 1% that on Earth, and the air is mostly carbon dioxide, so completely unbreathable for humans. And as if that wasn't enough, there's also a very high radiation environment on Mars. What happens if there's not enough pressure? Well, we don't really think about air pressure, do we? And we walk around with, uh, you know, 100 kilometres of air weighing down on us. And to some extent, you know, we've evolved to cope with those conditions and that pressure actually helps us to keep our insides inside. I'm imagining some sort of gelatinous mess on the floor that's very sunburnt. Yes, I think the the race, if you were exposed on the Martian surface, would be uh, whether your body fluids would evaporate first or whether they would freeze first because, of course, it's very cold. So you'd probably end up being freeze-dried. Not a pretty sight then. 
There are lots of problems we need to solve when it comes to moving to the Red Planet. And one of the biggest ones for me is, will we actually be able to get people back home to planet Earth? Fundamentally, though, when we're there, we need four things. Food, water, shelter and oxygen. As it happens, National Geographic have built the first ever Mars show home to celebrate their new mini-series called Mars. It looks like a red igloo. It's about four metres across. Photos are up on our Facebook page, by the way, if you want to have a look. Just search for Naked Scientists. Anyway, Marek advised on the build itself and he gave me a tour around it. So we're standing outside the Mars home and it looks like a sort of an igloo made of red Martian bricks, basically. But we're going to go inside now. So welcome to the Mars home. Thank goodness it's absolutely freezing on Mars. There's no airlock. Well, there is an air. This is the airlock. But there's no... Do you want to do the sound effect? I mean, that was pretty good, right? Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Okay. okay. It's quite a compact environment, but also designed to, be, to feel as spacious as possible. So we've got a little kitchen area down here with a microwave. I see, and a pie. There is a pie that will probably be freeze-dried for the journey. Uh, there's also a coffee maker, and I think it could be quite hipster. Maybe you could grow your coffee in Martian soil, so it would be absolutely hipster, authentic coffee. <laughs> but you're going to have to take everything you need with you. But to keep costs and, and transport down... Probably what they're going to have is a lot of 3D printing. So uh, over here in the corner, we have a 3D printer just by the desk, and that will be able to print out all sorts of different tools. So very, very useful technology that I think will make things a lot easier. But also they're going to be working hard out on the surface. And if we come over here, um, you can see we have a selection of uh, geologist tools (laughs) and rocks. So geology is going to be a big thing. We're going to want to understand the geological history of Mars and also to look for things like fossils of past life and even evidence of current life. Okay. And the final thing I want to talk about is the spacesuit. Because we think about spacesuits as these clumpy, great, big Michelin man-style things. And what you've got over there is nothing like that. The ones on Mars are going to use mechanical support to keep you held in against the the lack of external pressure. Absolutely. Mm. So they're going to be a lot more like wetsuits, perhaps with external support structures. Uh, And then, of course, you'll have a helmet, which will need to be pressurised. And I think there are uh, still issues to be worked through about how you marry the pressurised helmet bit with the more skin-tight wetsuit part of the the suit. Uh, And also, of course, we've got uh, a little bit of greenery in here. So this is great because it's a way of growing food. It also provides a little bit of oxygen and also I think it just gives you a bit of a sense of being back home absolutely the psychology uh, of the astronauts will be hugely important so it's not just about their physical health it is about their mental health they're going to be working in very close quarters for several years now it's all very sleek and slim line and you know it's very compactly designed but do you think this is realistic an interpretation of what living on Mars might be like Who knows uh, over the next couple of decades how people will decide to design the interior of these places. But I think this is a pretty good guess. It's a bit like sort of Martian Ikea, if you like. It's all very sleek, very kind of scandy, quite stylish. Orange and white. white, quite bright, kind of cheery colours. I would certainly be quite happy to um, have this as my office. And I think actually it's it's nicer than a lot of London flats. So, (laughs) you know, I think they're going to be pretty happy here. You've got all mod cons and you're also going to be part of one of the greatest adventures that humanity has ever undertaken your name will go down in history books absolutely that said would you go 
I would be really happy to go and visit Mars. I would even go for a couple of years, but only if I could come back. The Earth is, I think, the most beautiful and amazing planet that we've discovered so far in the whole universe. Certainly, it's the most beautiful planet in the solar system. I have not finished exploring it. What would you do? Would you stay or go to Mars? We want to hear from you. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. Uh, Mark in Bletchley's got in touch to say, I hope they got a decent radio station on Mars, maybe out of this world FM. And Mark Hansen wants to know, does Mars have Netflix? Well, Ed is a little bit more sceptical. He says, yes, we should definitely go to Mars because we might be hit by an asteroid, as might Mars, so we should definitely go and live in an environment we can't live in. <laughs> that was Greer Jackson speaking with Royal Observatory Greenwich's Marek Kula and journalist Stephen Petranik. Do you go to Mars? Uh, depends how the rest of 2016 plays out, but it's looking more <laughs> and more likely. <laughs> This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, we'll be looking out for your tweets on at Naked Scientist, or you can find us on Facebook. And now we're moving on to the main part of the programme. And this week, it's all about life's favourite molecule, DNA, the spiral at the heart of the cells in every living creature. So is DNA the holy grail of evolution across the universe? Before we turn to the science, let's turn to science fiction. Imagine a group of aliens with similar DNA to our own, only theirs twists the other way. So we have two groups, L and D. Earth's inhabitants were famous across the galaxy for their propensity for taking in the less fortunate. So when it became apparent that the D humans could no longer remain in their home planet... The L humans of Earth welcomed these refugees with open arms. How could we not? By all appearance, they are our doppelgangers. Their planet's primordial slime had also spat out the secret of life, the same double helix we're all so familiar with. The difference between us was literally minuscule, almost inconsequential. They were our mirror images. Because everything was flipped in their body, they functioned perfectly fine. We didn't even have to worry about the spread of extraterrestrial diseases, because theirs did not affect us, and ours didn't leave a scratch on them. Alice's journey through the looking glass should have served as a cautionary tale. After leading a long and extensive campaign to convince the people of planet Earth to help our chiral brethren, the scientists finally won the polarising debate. However, since the formulation of the plan to help the dehumans, there had been a few hiccups. The scientists had somehow overlooked the crucial fact that dehumans could not actually derive nutrition from L food, and so sprung up the Institute of Denutrition. But the most heartbreaking hiccup of all... We were biologically incompatible. Too bad. And that story was based on an idea by the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Linus Pauling. He didn't actually get around to writing it, so MIT student Alexandra Surikov did it for him. And it was narrated there by Rox Middleton. Now, what actually is the likelihood that DNA could turn up on two different planets independently? Well, let's bring some science to the table. With us in the studio is chemist Matt Powner from University College London. He studies the origins of life 
The Earth's about four and a half billion years old. So how quickly did something that we would regard as resembling a life process get started? Um, essentially, as far back as we can see, we think we can find traces of life. So as we look back in the, the rock record of the Earth, we start to run out of actual records somewhere about 3.8 billion years ago. But as far back as that, we think we can find traces of carbon isotope effects that suggest life was there even as early as that. And suggests that whatever that process was, it happened quick. On a geological timescale, quick. But on a chemical timescale, there's still a long period of history. We still have almost half a billion years between the moon-forming event, when no life could have existed on Earth, the Earth was just too hot, literally molten rock, and 3.8 billion years, there's, there's, there's nearly half a billion years. And chemically, that's a long time. Geologically, it's quite a short period. So would you like to speculate for me and tell me what you think those first life forms or those first life processes were? What happened? Yes. So to, to think about that, we need to think about what it is to be alive. And that's a very difficult thing for us to formulate opinions upon because we only have one example of life and all life on Earth is all related. It's all part of the same family tree. But generalistically, there is a working model. This was developed uh, by a panel for NASA of what, what life is, and that is a self-sustaining system of chemicals that can undergo Darwinian evolution. So to have a system of chemicals that can do this, we need a molecule that can pass information from one generation to the next. And what biology uses for this are nucleic acids, so like DNA and its close cousin RNA. These are a, a, a polymeric molecule, so a molecule that's a string of individual components, a bit like a, a, a string of beads. And each bead has an informational unit or is an informational unit. And the order in which we build the string of beads then gives us a message, and that message can talk to itself and to other molecules, which then allows it to be copied and allows it to have utility and function. So once you have a molecule that has information and can be copied, then you can start to access uh, the processes of Darwinian evolution. So you think the first life was a sequence of chemical reactions which store information in some kind of molecule, a bit maybe like DNA, and it inherently has this ability to copy itself and control what happens to it, and it then ultimately adds extra complexity that turns into things like the cells that we have that make our bodies. That is part of the answer. You need an informational molecule, something that can retain information over many generations, but that molecule doesn't seem to be able to function on its own. We need other things like a lipid membrane to isolate that information from other forms of information. So, so realistically, looking for one molecule that is the origin of life is unlikely to give us a fruitful answer. We need many molecules and to understand how all of those come together and how they're generationally linked to understand where life could have come from. And, and actually, how do we think that happened? Why did this miracle occur? Current evidence points to the fact that if we take very simple geochemically plausible one and two carbon units, they can be reacted together in very simple, very robust reactions to give specifically the components that we find in biology. Then if these have energy, if we have the ability to keep recreating these molecules, you can understand how something that can replicate itself can come to dominate a chemical system and start to lead to the processes that we now recognise as life. Since we can regard this as, as capable of being reduced down to chemistry... 
And given the ubiquity of chemistry in the universe, we, we know that we've got the same elements here on Earth that we have on Mars and beyond our galaxy and across the universe. Does that mean then that it's likely that alien life probably will settle on the same sorts of chemistry that we have observed here on Earth and therefore we probably do have a high likelihood of meeting aliens that also use DNA as their hereditary material? So, uh, in my opinion, uh, the, the, the chemistry that governs why we, uh, our biology selected the, the fundamental conserved uh, metabolites that are essential to all living cells, that chemistry is based on some very selective reactions that can assemble these molecules, and these molecules specifically from very, very simple uh, chemical precursors, these chemical precursors we find throughout the universe. So, for example, hydrogen cyanide, very simple compound. We find it everywhere we look in the universe. Not this terribly is, good for you, though. Not for us, but for early life, it is thought to be essential, an essential element to building both proteins and nuclear base uh, material. So, it's not only the relationship of the individual molecules, so how easy DNA or RNA is to make, it's also the relationship to the other molecules of biology. So the same chemistries that build nucleotides build amino acids and can be used to build lipids. So it's the interrelationship of all these molecules and the fact that they are all synthesized through very simple, simple and similar mechanisms suggests a universality to that chemistry. There are obviously ways that you can you can change it slightly in small ways and you can have variations on the theme. But I, I believe the overarching mechanisms that, that biology uses at the most fundamental level will likely be universal or could be replicated many times throughout the universe. In conditions as exist here on Earth? Because, I mean, we know in our own solar system, if you go to Titan, for example, one of the moons of Saturn, you will find an ocean there, but it's an ocean of ethane. You know, the temperature is minus 200 and something degrees C. So could we see other chemistries that sustain other interesting life processes? We wouldn't recognise them as our sort of life, but they're still life. It is, it is absolutely a possibility that in very, very different conditions we could envisage something very very different as life but it would have to be phenomenally different for life to have evolved as we know it in an organic environment like ethane we have to change everything about the cell so cell membranes are built on the process of excluding water the same is true of dna so dna has a lipophilic core and it's this exclusion of water that drives so much of life's processes that to envisage life for example on titan in a hydrocarbon environment it would have to be fundamentally different from our life at every level we'll keep looking Matt, thank you very much. And uh, that's Matt Powner. He is from University College London. This month on Naked Astronomy, we turn to one of the fundamental questions that's plagued scientists for decades. Is anybody out there? If you're going to be sort of middle-of-the-road conservative, you'd say several hundred civilizations in the galaxy. Finding life elsewhere would be another step towards relegating humanity from this pedestal of being so special. Join me as I ponder the possibilities with a superstar cast of guests, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jim Al-Khalili and Dallas Campbell. Just search for The Naked Astronomy Podcast. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. 
Still to come, why scientists are sequencing DNA in outer space and an artificial form of DNA that scientists have made in the lab. But first, let's take a closer look at life as we know it. The best way to do this is by reading the DNA code in an organism. And until recently, this would have cost thousands of pounds and required a high-tech lab. But new technology means that now almost anyone, such as a school biology class, can sequence the string of DNA letters or bases that make up the genetic code inside a cell, including inside the fruits you throw into your morning smoothie. Kirsten Gertfrig. Just the strawberries and the banana, my love, yes? Yes, please, thanks. Thank you, just got to weigh the banana for you. 229 altogether. Put the strawberries in the bag for you. Mmm, delicious. But I should really save it for tomorrow because this drink is a scientific experiment. I will be visiting the Perth School in Cambridge and we will see if the students can find out what I put into my drink. I, I don't know. Strawberries? Um, lemon? Oh, I was going to say a banana. Um, some yogurt. Banana? Uh, banana, probably, yeah. Yogurt, probably. Blueberries. Good guesses, but I wouldn't bet my money on them. With us in the classroom is scientist Kim Judge from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Maybe she can help out. So maybe a good idea would be to sequence the DNA because each species of fruit will have a different DNA and we can use that to tell what's in the smoothie. DNA sequencing means reading the letters of the genetic code, determining the order of the bases A, T, C and G. But first we need to get the DNA out of the smoothie before we can sequence it. And you can do this at home. The students explain how. Step one, add dish soap. We add dish soap to destroy the membrane that surrounds the cell, which is like getting fat off dirty dishes. Step two, add salt. The DNA is still wrapped around little proteins, so we have to add salt, which um, binds to the DNA and replaces the proteins. Step three, strain to remove solids. We sieved the smoothie mix that we had to remove any solids like seeds. Step four, add alcohol. We need to pick the DNA out. We do that by adding alcohol because it makes the DNA clump together. And there we go. Clumps are swimming on my smoothie. They look... White and mushy. (laughs) That is DNA. Kim is fishing some of it out. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. What I've brought here with me in this tube is some magnetic beads and the DNA will bind to these beads and we can use that to exchange what solution the DNA is in. That is step five. Clean up the DNA and dissolve it in water. While we wait, Kim is passing around the key bit of technology, the nanopore sequencer developed by Oxford Nanopore Technologies. It is a small handheld device that plugs into a laptop like a USB stick. A nanopore is a tiny hole in a membrane, a million times smaller than the eye of a needle. How can it be used to sequence DNA? In nanopore sequencing, DNA goes through a tiny hole and causes a characteristic disturbance in the current that flows across that hole. And from that, we can tell the sequence of the DNA. So DNA blocks part of the hole and that causes a different disturbance in the current depending upon what the sequence of the DNA is. Is it going to work? I am sceptical. One last step before we find out. Step six, 
Heat the DNA to 37 and then to 70 degrees Celsius. So we're just warming it up to 37 degrees, hence why I'm rubbing it. It's so we can prepare it for when we sequence the DNA. What we're doing here is, just in the same way that you have to cook spaghetti before you eat it, we're transforming the DNA into a format that can be read by the nanopore. And so that involves us breaking the DNA into sensible-sized fragments and it involves us putting some additional fragments of DNA in so that that's going to uh, direct the DNA to the nanopore and help to pull it through. That means we're ready for step seven, sequence the DNA. You've put a solution of the DNA into the nanopore sequencer and that's going to transfer the data to the computer where it's going to be read. The cool thing with this technology is that you can really see the data appearing in real time. As the DNA is pulled through the nanopore, the computer is drawing the different current levels onto the screen, corresponding to different combinations of DNA bases. A bit like writing music where different levels correspond to different notes. We may not be so pressed in time for our smoothie, but in the clinic this could really make a difference, Kim told me. The other big plus compared to competing sequencing technologies is that the device is portable. It is currently used to monitor the Zika epidemic in Brazil and by ecologists, present and maybe future ones. I would go to the jungle because there's loads of animals there, like loads of different species, and you could just find the origins. Sounds all very sensible. What does Kim think of my idea to sequence a smoothie? For me, the easiest way to find out what's in the smoothie is maybe drink it and see what it tastes like. <laughs> but um, it is going to be useful maybe for if you're involved in checking food standards. There's no better way to be 100% certain about what someone's put in their smoothie than to check the DNA. It would also be a way that you could check whether there was some bacterial contamination in the smoothie, maybe meaning that the smoothie's gone bad. Lots of applications there. Does that mean we don't need large sequencing centres anymore? Some of the other sequence technologies have really strong benefits too. They're really good at sequencing lots of samples in one go and they're really accurate. And nanopore technology just has different pros and cons. It's a different part of the biologist's toolkit. But back to our smoothie. Our DNA extraction was better than expected. Lots to sequence and more reads of DNA were still coming in. So Kim sent us the results the next day. Pages of spreadsheets filled with the letters A, T, C and G. A code that does not mean very much to me. So ready for step eight, decode the information. So once we've sequenced the DNA, we need to copy and paste that to an online database and you can use that to find out what was in the smoothie. What was in the smoothie then? Fragaria ananasa and Musa acuminata. So we found out that in the smoothie there was banana and strawberry. Mystery solved. We read an impressive total of 10 million DNA bases. Back in 2000 that would have cost $100,000 and we would have been in a big sequencing centre, not in a classroom. Quite impressive how the technology has evolved over the past decade. Sequencing a smoothie in a classroom. Who knew? That was Kirsten Gertfrug with Kim Judge and the Purse School. And now it is your turn to try your hand at being a DNA scientist. And that's because we have got a mystery smoothie here that Kim has sequenced for us. I would say it's a rather bizarre colour. Um, now, what we want you to do is to analyse the sequence for us and tell us what you think is in the smoothie. Now, there are instructions on how to do this. And we've also put the DNA code that Kim sent us onto our website. You can find 
find the instructions and you can get access to the DNA code we sequenced at nakedscientist.com slash DNA. That's nakedscientist.com slash DNA. So, Georgia, what do you um, what do you think? Is it good on the nose? Is it a good bouquet? Mm, it smells good. It's tasty. I'm very bad at this. I think there's banana in here. And judging by the colour, maybe something like a melon or apple. <laughs> um, it tastes good, but I, I there's no giveaway from the colour, is there? Matt Powner, who we were talking to earlier, what, what do you do you think is in there? Uh, the chemist, do, use your, chemist, chem, your uh, analytical uh, chemistry skills. What do you think is in this? I get uh, banana taste. I think I got melon from a, a little bit of texture that I had in there. Possibly uh, strawberry based on smell, but. Uh, that's there's there's something subtle in there that I can't put my finger on, but I can certainly taste there's, there's a little something in there. If you want to have a go at uh, cracking the smoothie code, then you go to nakedscientist.com slash DNA. And uh, if you can decode it, then you can tweet your thoughts to what is the ingredients or the makeup to this smoothie to at Naked Scientist. You can also go on our page on Facebook and you can become hopefully the Naked Smoothie Scientist who we crown on the show next week. We'll tell you what those ingredients were. Now, what would you do with a portable DNA sequencer? Well, one of the students we heard from just now said that we could take it to Mars. Well, might that be a possibility? NASA's Aaron Burton is with us from Texas. Aaron, hello. Could we take a DNA sequencer into space? Has anyone tried that? Um, Actually, we're sequencing DNA in space right now on the International Space Station. Terrific. Why? So it kind of depends on who you ask. Our team has uh, microbiologists, infectious disease experts, Um, and also some astrobiologists. For the crew health standpoint, if you have a sequencer, you can identify microbes in the air, surfaces, and water and make sure that everything's safe. And also, if a crew member shows signs of illness, then you can diagnose the disease that they have and determine the appropriate treatment. So if they need antimicrobials or if uh, an infection will go away on its own. And actually, the process of DNA sequencing, it doesn't mind, in inverted commas, being in microgravity, such as the International Space Station. It doesn't affect the process. So far, it hasn't. We weren't really concerned about the nanopores themselves and the mechanism for sequencing and passing the DNA through. Uh, the bigger question was whether the flow cells could survive the launch vibrations and shock uh, just to get up to the space station, and then whether or not the uh, crew members themselves would be able to you know, move the fluids around, load the flow cell, uh, without introducing air bubbles. Um, but we're eight experiments in and things are going great. Well, that's very encouraging. Now, returning to the question the student asked, could we or would there be virtue in taking a device like this to a place like Mars and looking for vestiges of DNA in space? Because Matt Pound is saying that the same chemistry applies across the universe, therefore it's likely we might be meeting aliens that use the same sorts of genetic heritable material like DNA that we do. Yeah, I, so I would agree with that from the, the fundamental chemistry level. And we also know we have uh, meteorites from Mars that have landed on Earth. So we know that material from Mars can make it to Earth. And then we also have sent a number of spacecraft from Earth to Mars. Um, so we know that we've sent you know a few microbes uh, attached to those spacecraft. So there's a good reason to think that, at least in these kind of events, you could transfer organisms from Earth to Mars and vice versa. So there's reason to suspect we might find DNA, but what about alien DNA? And if they don't use DNA, DNA, like we do, but they have something similar, could you use the same sort of platform or technology to go hunting for that instead? Yeah, that's one of the really intriguing things about the nanopore sequencer is because you're actually analyzing the molecule directly when it's going through the nanopore, you can measure a whole lot of things. So not just DNA, but people have shown you can directly sequence RNA and even proteins that they've actually passed through these pores. So you can imagine if you had uh, alien life that used a different alphabet, 
you know, you would still be able to pass those molecules through the nanopore and get that current change that would be diagnostic of an informational molecule going through it. Aaron, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Aaron Burton, and he is from NASA. And in fact, you can follow their work online. It's uh, www.dna.space if you'd like to find out what they're up to. Now, life as we know it uses DNA. But does it really have to? Vitor Pinheiro is with us. He's a biologist at University College London, where he makes molecules that are kind of like DNA. Hi, Vitor. Thanks for joining us. Um, So what are these molecules? What have you been up to? Well, Georgia, you heard before sort of DNA described as a sort of beads on a string, and you saw that you you heard that base is the the makeup DNA. Effectively, if you take a bead, you can actually break into three different parts. So the base itself, a sugar, so ribose, and a phosphate. In principle, if you change any one of those, you can affect the function of the molecule. You can affect how it behaves chemically and biologically. If you change any of those, you have a synthetic nucleic acid, which can store information. And we call those sort of xenobiotic nucleic acids or XNA. Okay, so XNA. So what you've done is you've changed one small ingredient in the DNA chain, and this has made this XNA. Yeah. Because if you change that one particular feature into every bead, into every sort of rung of the ladder, you actually end up with something that's very different, but can still store genetic information. Okay, so my next question is, why why do we need another thing? Why isn't DNA enough? Well, it, it, it has been so far. But you could argue from a sort of theoretical perspective, Matthew mentioned earlier on, you have N equals 1 biology. So we don't know whether anything else is possible. So, of course, if you can generate a new genetic material and prove that life can can be sustained by it, you actually answer a very interesting question, that kind of life doesn't have to be DNA. There are also applications, more more practical applications, both in sort of medical applications and materials. Okay, so what kind of things can you do with this XNA? So, uh, so XNA, you could use it both as a material or even as a sort of therapeutic agent. Um, And those would be the key applications for it. Why would it be useful as a therapeutic agent? So uh, kind of biology has evolved to essentially exclude biology, uh, sort of defend itself against other life forms. So it it very quickly uh, sort of identifies and destroys any invasive RNA and invading DNA. But of course, XNA, depending on the modification, can sidestep that. It can be sort of not seen by biology. Oh, I see. So it could be a way of sort of smuggling biological drugs into someone's body without their immune system noticing. Yes. What kind of therapies are we talking about here? So, for instance, there's a sort of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The disease is caused by exon skipping. So the, the natural processes in the cell don't recognize the right, so the right elements. So even though you're starting from potentially nearly correct DNA molecule, you end up with a protein that doesn't work well. Okay, so the cell's not reading the DNA correctly. Yeah. And here's where, if you have a molecule, and this is work done by Mike Gate here uh, sort of the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, with some XNA chemistries, you can target the DNA and force the cell machinery to skip to the, something that is something a lot less troublesome, is a lot less closer to the disease state. And in effect, that then creates gives you a therapy value. Okay. And when you say you've sort of created a new kind of DNA, a, a new thing altogether, can you create life like this? In principle, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, sort of the very first proof of principle was to show that with a different nucleic acid, you could store information and you could then recover that information. From that proof of principle, it makes it feasible to then evolve every other component you need to make that information compatible with current biology. Uh, and to some extent, my group is currently doing that. 
So could you, say, create a whole new lease of life with these ZNA forming its basis? Yeah, again, in principle, yes. Because from the moment you have a single gene that is made of XNA, technically you can make every other gene you need in, in XNA and eventually sustain life itself. Oh, wow. And I keep saying ZNA, it's XNA, isn't it? So um, what are the risks? What are the risks that we might be facing with this? Um, to some degree, going to, so towards XNA life or XNA in biology is exactly the opposite. It's trying to address potential risks that we're not even familiar with. If you look at how biotechnology is done nowadays, or so genetic modification, we rely a lot on engineering solutions. We rely on, on sort of trying to make the organism we work with less fit. And ultimately, so far, the kind of, there's no examples of any catastrophic result. But we get into a position where we can engineer more. We can bring more genes into a cell. We can rewrite the entire genome of a cell. Uh, and while we do not think that that is in itself dangerous, you could argue that we're not in a position to understand every way you can go wrong. And there's a lot of discussion on this, on creating new containment methodologies, containing, sort of creating better biological containment. Because ultimately, you want to isolate the organism. You don't want that to go into the environment. You also don't want the information that the organism has to get into the environment. And, and this is, for instance, where XNA can happen. Because if you, if you have life as an XNA, but those XNA building blocks are not natural, so you have to chemically synthesize them, an organism containing XNA technically cannot escape because if they get to the environment, they don't have the precursors. So they have to lose that XNA information. Not only that, if XNA information itself escapes, no other cell in nature has the machinery to read it, has the machinery to access that information. So that information is inert and it will be, it will be lost. Okay, so I suppose it's, it's a self-contained system that by its very nature, can't go out and integrate with us in that kind of way. Yes, absolutely. So it's sort of, it, we, we usually refer to it as genetic containment. We've been talking a lot in the show about whether DNA is the sort of blueprint for life everywhere. Does your work suggest it's not? What do you think about that? It, it would be a question of whether biology kind of is based only on what's natural or of what's feasible. Matt mentioned earlier on that kind of... Um, as long as the chemistry allows it, you can do it. And it's the same thing. Sort of biology doesn't invent things very often, but when it does invent, it optimizes it very well. So in a different note, in a different scenario where you have different sort of different precursors available, you could actually have different chemistry. So you could have life based on a different molecule. Given different precursors, I don't see why something different couldn't have emerged. So you, we had the story about the sort of L and the D DNAs. Yeah, that would be possible. Thank you very much. That was Mr. XNA, Vito Pinheiro. And thanks also to our other guests this week, Aaron Burton and Matt Powner, who we heard from earlier. Well, that's almost it for this week, but we have got time for our question of the week. And Liam Messon has set out to answer this attractive question from Tim. If you start with a magnet with a north and south pole and break it into half, you get two separate magnets, each with their own north and south poles. So how does it know it's been broken? What causes the change? And where does it get the energy to do this? So why is it when we break a magnet in half, we get two new magnets? Why don't we just get separate north and south poles formed? Luckily, there was a second Tim, Tim Boyd, a Cambridge undergraduate, on hand to set me straight on this polarising issue. Thinking of magnets as having a north and south pole is slightly misleading. They have a thing known as a dipole. This means that they have one pole with a north and south end. But it is a little more complicated than that. 
What we think of as a magnet, a bar magnet, is made from lots of little magnets all pointing the same way as each other. These little magnets are called domains, and each has its own dipole, so a north and south end. Therefore the strength of the magnet is the total of all these little magnets. However, if all the little magnets pointed in random directions, then the total would be zero. There would be no magnetization. Before, you may have been told to be careful not to drop magnets. This is because, if we shake around all the little magnets, they will no longer point in the same direction, and so the magnet will no longer be magnetised. Noted. Don't drop magnets. But wait a minute, how do we get our little magnets all lined up beforehand? We do this by putting the magnet near a really strong magnet, which then pulls all the little magnets to point in the same direction. If the really strong magnet is then taken away, there is nothing to pull the little magnets away from pointing in this direction. So they stay happily pointing in the same direction, and we have magnetization. To make a magnet, we need a magnet. Luckily, there are both naturally occurring magnets and electromagnets for this task. However we make them, we always get the situation of loads of little magnets all pointing in the same direction. So what happens when we break a magnet in half? You split it into two magnets made of lots of little magnets, all pointing in the same way. So if the right-hand end of the original was north and the left-hand south, then the right-hand end of the two new magnets would be north and the left-hand end south. The direction of the dipole hasn't changed. The north end and the south end are still in the same place. The strength of these new magnets is half that of the original, as it is made from half of the little magnets. The magnet doesn't need to know it has been broken or change its magnetic structure. It already has the new poles. It turns out that it's magnets all the way down. Thank you, Tim Boyd, for answering our question, and thank you, Tim Harvey, for asking it. And for next week, Mitchell wants the answer to this burning question. This has always baffled me. Why doesn't water burn? It is made of two of the three things that you need to make a fire, fuel in the form of hydrogen and oxygen, and yet it doesn't burn. My mum says that it's because it is wet, yet oil Petrol and many other wet liquids burn. Why do these liquids burn? <laughs> That's a great question. If you've got any burning thoughts on that, please do tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on Facebook. And that, I'm afraid, is all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to our guests who appeared earlier and also to Connie Orbach and Kirsten Gopfreak for putting the programme together. Next week, we're looking at the question of antibiotic resistance. Why does this happen and what can we do to combat the threat? Your thoughts and questions via the usual channels, chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, or you can also tweet at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.